Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American power, politics and society. On each episode, I will talk to an American expert or an expert on America about something that's going on in America in 2023. I am delighted to be joined again, back by popular demand, by Robert Bryce, who is an energy expert. And we're going to be talking about COP, the Climate Change Summit, which is taking place at the moment in Dubai. And asking if COP is really a bit of a busted flush, Robert, because Joe Biden did not attend because of what's going on in the Middle East. Interestingly, he couldn't go to the Middle East because of what's going on in the Middle East. And there is a sort of obvious absurdity in having this climate change summit in Dubai, which is a 85% petroleum exporting country. And it seems to me that uh, both climate change sceptics, if you want to call them that, or, or people who are a bit more cynical about the whole green movement, and uh, sort of the Greta Thunbergs of this world, are united when it comes to COP, because um, it does seem to be a, a bit of a, a joke, really. Yeah, well, I, I, I read my friend Roger Pilkey Jr. He's a professor at the University of Colorado uh, he published a piece just the other day, which I thought was very on on point. And I have not been to COP myself, but I've followed them for many years now. And the the script seems to me to be all, uh, and I'll come back to Roger in just a second. The script to me seems always to be the same, that, oh, the, there's a lot of skepticism, a lot of cynicism beforehand, and then everybody gets together and, oh, nothing happens, nothing happens. And then somehow, miraculously, right the night before the thing is all supposed to adjourn there's a breakthrough agreement and everyone stands up and agrees and it's an head claps and oh this is going to be different well we've heard this over and over and over again right paris was supposed to be the breakthrough uh you know and, and after that we had glasgow you know i forget how many this is 28 meetings now but that the effect of all of these you have, we have to admit and have to be very sober about this has been effectively nothing there has no there has been no radical change in energy policies among the, uh, the countries of the world. And I, and I think it's very clear now in the wake of Russia, Ukraine, and I would say even especially after uh, Hamas's uh, war on Israel, that energy security is trumping all of these concerns about climate change. Um, so uh, just one quick point about what, what Roger wrote earlier this week. I want to just read it because he points out that there are 70,000 people are now expected to go to Dubai, 70,000, which is double the number that were went to the COP last year in Egypt. And here's what he said. Climate is now a full scale industry with fortunes and careers to be made and perhaps lost. That is not necessarily good or bad. Health, defense, finance and so on are also industries. It goes with the territory. And he just says, along with the climate industrial complex comes massive, massive vested interests ranging from the financial to professional to the political. And I just think that that's a really important point, that this is a business. And so follow the money. Who stands to gain? And there are a lot of NGOs, a lot of uh, vested interest, renewable energy companies that stand to make money if their policies, their angles get adopted. Yes. And I mean, there's been a bit of outrage in recent days that uh, the UAE uh, has been trying to make money uh, from uh, COP. Uh, by, uh, you know, it's being run, the chairman of it is is head of the National Oil Company, um, and it is trying to use COP to secure more oil and gas uh, contracts. But 
uh, with the proviso that um, the Spectator and the UAE are um, <laughs> are in the news at the moment, uh, I think we can say fairly that um, I mean, of course, they're going to do that because uh, COP has essentially become. A, 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 a transactional place for um, the energy industry. Well, and okay, and that's a very good point, of course. And Dubai, hello, this is where uh, business interests from all over the world go to do business. Where are Russian oligarchs locating in Dubai? Where are you know international investors of all kinds locating? They're locating in Dubai because it's a city with very little regulation. Uh, it's very open in terms of immigration, and um, and there's money there. So, but I think it's important to even just step back, Freddie, and think about okay, well, what's the context here? Well, just last month in October. Oil production in the U.S. set a brand new record, over 13.2 million barrels per day. A few weeks ago, the International Energy Agency, uh, or actually it was in the summer, uh, declared that global coal consumption this year will reach a new record, 8.4 billion tons. The Chinese are now, last year, permitted two new coal plants per week. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the thing that is it's so obvious to me about this COP, as well as all the other COPs, is there's this kind of dissonance between what is really happening in the energy and power sectors and a lot of the talk about what should happen. And as my Meredith Angwin's, uh, my friend Meredith Angwin says, what we have is a lot of should talk when what we have to deal with is what we, is the real situation. And what, you know, just it seems to me, we're going to see a lot of what should be happening instead of what is really happening. Yes. Uh, the Spectator's cover this week, I don't know if you've seen it, uh, it's only just come out today, is uh, Carbon Capture. Uh, and it's a picture of Xi Jinping. Uh, in green, uh, and it's about how uh, the, the the CCP have effect- effectively uh, cornered a lot of uh, the green tech market, um, and so COP for them is yeah. a is a tremendous marketing opportunity. Um, but as you point out, China is uh, the the biggest emitter emitter of uh, emissions in the world. I think twenty six percent or something double double America more than double America's. Um, emissions. And yet, uh, we don't hear a lot of talk about that at COP generally. Well, China, of course, is the 800 pound gorilla, use whatever metaphor, you know, simile what you, you picture you want here. But as China goes on ter- in terms of CO2, so goes the world. And I would argue that and have, in fact, that what is happening in the West, the Anglosphere, let's call it in the West, when it comes to CO2 emissions, doesn't matter. The U.S. has cut its CO2 emissions on an absolute basis more than any other country in the world over the last 20 years. And that re- emissions reductions, along with whatever reductions have happened in the other five uh, largest economies in the world, uh, or other Western countries, Germany, Japan, France, uh, Britain, etc., makes effectively no difference because those reductions have been completely swamped by what has happened in, in, in India and China. But I think it's absolutely essential, and I haven't seen the, the piece, but your, your colleague Natasha alerted me to it. And yes, China controls, uh, in fact, I would say has a monopoly right now, in particular on, let's just look at one of the key commodities, neodymium iron boron magnets. Okay, well, I don't know if you know your chemistry or not, Neodymium iron boron magnets are the high coercivity magnets, high strength magnets that are critical for electric vehicles and wind turbines. They're also critical in all kinds of defense applications, missiles, etc. 
China controls 90% of the global market in neodymium iron boron magnets. They control 100% of the global market in terbium and dysprosium, two rare earth elements like neodymium that are used to dope the magnets so they work at high temperature. So the reality is that the U.S., and that's just one example. I could talk about copper. I could talk about uh, solar panels. More than 90% of the raw materials that go into solar panels are sourced in China. What, this, what we have done, this whole green economy is all about China, the so-called green economy, this alt-energy economy. The, the supply chains are all China dependent. I mean, it's just we, we in the West, and I'm going to say especially for the U.S., have ceded this dominance to China. And, they have, and now they have, are flexing their muscle. They recently cut off the flow of graphite. So this is a very um, uh, obvious situation, but it doesn't get the kind of coverage it needs because it doesn't fit this narrative that, oh, alt energy is going to be clean and green and cheap and all this other stuff. But we have ceded our supply, t- supply chains to China. And I think it's very dangerous. And, I mean, it speaks to uh, a kind of, without wanting to sound too uh, dramatic about it, a kind of superpower suicide when you look at America. Um, that uh... <laughs> Superpower suicide, but I like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because, I mean, you are, uh, you know, China is a strategic rival. There's no denying that. Um, uh, the Biden administration has now got this sort of twin track policy of of challenging, but also working with China where it can. Um, And yet on this very important uh, matter of energy, uh, we are effectively allowing China to control a future economy that we don't even know will work. (laughs) Uh, And it's, it's extremely dumb geopolitically, is it not? Well, yes, I think that's extremely dumb. I think that there you go. You pegged it there, Freddie. Way to go. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I ran across, in fact, it was a debate, your your uh, former countryman, uh, Christopher Hitchens. I saw it was on some debate. He, anyway, he had this great line, sinister piffle, which I thought was just lovely. Sinister piffle. Well, that's that says a lot. So what has happened? Let's look at wind turbines. Well, the manufacturer, the Chinese are now dominating the manufacture of wind turbines. I'm a longtime critic of the wind industry, proudly so. I don't like them. They don't like me back. I am fine with that. But China has come to completely dominate that marketplace. And what, what are we seeing in these wind energy companies in the West, Siemens and now Orsted and these others? They're going bust. They're, they can't, can't make any money because they're in part because of high interest rates. But also uh, it, it, a big part of this is that China, I think, is now producing around Half of their, they can produce wind turbines at half the price that Western companies can. Um, and I found the the uh, numbers on the solar stuff. And I have solar panels on the roof of my house. Let me be clear: solar is gro- is growing dramatically. There's no doubt about it. And I think in the future, solar is going to grow more quickly than wind because of its high power density. But uh, China can manufactures eighty percent of all global uh, solar panels globally. Produces eighty five percent of the the supply of solar cells. Eighty eight percent of solar grade polysilicon and 97% of the silicon ingots and wafers that form the core of solar cells, 97%. That is what you call a monopoly. And so the West is willingly walking into this. And there was a piece that was in the FT in which a writer said, the West's green future will be red. Well, hold on here. Then, Then do we really want this green at just any cost? I think it's madness. Um, speaking of Sinister Piffle, you had a very interesting Substack uh, piece uh, recently, I think it was, 
um, about uh, the Biden administration's, I think it was a 900 million uh, grant to Angola on solar plants. Right. Uh, tell us yeah. a little bit about that story, because it seems to me a, a, quite a big scandal that went unnoticed. Sure. Well, this, thank you for, thank you for looking that up. Yes, yeah, so it was called, the, the title of the piece was on my Substack, robertbryce.substack.com, was Let Them Eat Solar Panels. And the, the, the gist of the story is this. In June, the president spoke in Washington, D.C. at a meeting of the League of Conservation Voters, which is a very wealthy climate NGO. Their annual budget is over $100 million per year. They will, they're one of the groups that stand to get a large chunk of the money that Michael Bloomberg, one of the oligarchs, one of the billionaires that's funding a lot of these climate groups, um, he's granted them, going to give them $500 million to shut down coal plants and, and natural gas plants. But back to the point with the League of Conservation Voters, Biden announced gleefully at this meeting in June that the U.S. Export-Import Bank was giving a loan of $900 million to Angola so Angola could build a, wait for it, a solar project. Angola is a desperately poor country in Africa. They're also a member of OPEC. They have massive amounts of natural gas. Why, in the name of Peter, Paul, and Mary, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, is the U.S., funding a solar project in a country where electricity consumption is next to on a per capita basis is pitifully low. We should be doing everything we can to help them get more electricity that is reliable uh, and cheap and that it, it can help them build industry and, and, and bring their people out of the dark and into the light instead of we're so funding a solar project. Get out of town. But the part of the, this was the greatest part of it, Freddie, that illustrates the absolute absurdity of the whole thing. In its press release, the Export-Import Bank announced that this move will help Angola meet its climate uh, goals. Climate goals? I mean, it's like the, the per capita CO2 emissions from the Angolans are next to nothing. That, that why would they even have climate goals? I mean, but it's just this, the climate industrial corporate complex. This is how it works. This, you know, the money, the NGOs, the academics, the, you know, the government, the, you know, the big business, big banks, they are all part of this. And the more they hype the danger of catastrophism, the more money they get. And so it's this uh, self-licking ice cream cone, as my friend Chuck Spinney calls it. Yes. And uh, there's, a, there's an imperialistic aspect to it, but it's not the kind of imperialism that helps develop developing countries. Uh, it actually thwarts their growth. And, and that's the right. And so I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's it. Exactly. It's as uh, Vijaya Ramachandran calls it carbon colonialism. You know, I think that that's it. Imperialism, colonialism, but carbon colonialism. That is exactly the right term for this. We in the West, oh, it's okay for us to burn coal, but not, oh, you're not supposed to burn coal in Vietnam, in South uh, South Africa, um, uh, Indonesia, where, in fact, coal is, coal is desperately needed to help them electrify. So it is carbon colonialism. I think that's exactly the right way to think about this. And it's just a, a modern form of imperialism that is aimed at keeping poor people in the dark. Yes. Let's get back to Joe Biden, because this is called the American Arno podcast. Um, and Joe Biden uh, is not having a great time in the polls. Um, but his green agenda is often trumpeted as uh, one of his big successes. Uh, and it's partly because um, a lot of it is about green jobs in America. And they pair the green yeah. agenda with uh, what a lot of people call protectionist, uh, but, um, you know, quite popular policies that are designed to create American yeah. jobs, 
um, protect American industry and so on. How successful do you think they've been at that? They haven't been. I mean, let's let's be clear, Freddie. I mean, the the uh, it's a combination of several factors, but one of the key ones, of course, is the supply chain issues we've just been talking about. Um, let's look at offshore wind. I'm an absolute opponent of offshore wind. The only thing dumber than onshore wind energy is offshore wind energy. The idea that the wind energy business, most of them foreign companies, should be coming into American waters and putting in not just hundreds, but potentially thousands of offshore platforms in the middle of known North Atlantic right whale habitat. I mean, if this was the oil and gas industry, this would the hue and cry from the NGOs would be, we wouldn't hear the end of it. They'd be chaining themselves to bulldozers, but instead, because it's wind energy, it's been okay. And the Biden administration has been complicit. And I think the doing the, the, the very clearly the work of the offshore wind industry and in, in granting permits for these projects. But thankfully, thankfully, who knew interest rate, high interest rates were good for whales? These projects are being canceled left and right because they don't make economic sense. More broadly, let's look at, uh, you know, backup for the Inflation Reduction Act, which was uh, passed through and, and became law only because Kamala Harris broke the tie in the Senate. And this was in a reconciliation measure, which is not proper the way you legislate for massive spending programs like this that could, in fact, end up costing trillions of dollars. But then let's look onshore. Let's look at the EV business. Uh, electric vehicle sales are plummeting. Uh, uh, Ford and GM have both just recently announced their plans for big electric vehicle battery plants. They're stopping them because they're realizing there isn't enough demand. So, uh, in fact, Bloomberg uh, News just had a recent report talking about this very fact that all of these plants for alt energy are, are you know, they're looking grim, uh, largely because of high interest rates and the prospect of a downturn in the economy. But you know, it just doesn't work. I'll, I'll repeat, I might finish this long kind of tirade here. If we're serious about CO2 emissions, Freddie, there, I've been saying the same thing now for 15 years. Natural gas to nuclear, end to end is the way forward. We need to get serious about natural gas and nuclear globally, uh, but the key is going to be nuclear. And I think that one of the good things that's going to happen in Dubai is an increased focus on nuclear energy. What, what leads you to think that? Well, one, uh, well, several things. Uh, one, John Kerry, who's uh, President Biden's climate envoy, I think he recently said, I think I remember it, he said nuclear is 100% part of the solution. Um, ENEC, the uh, Emirates Nuclear Energy Corporation, they're hosting a long day of, of, of uh, or several days of just focus on nuclear energy. Remember, uh, in Abu Dhabi, they just have finished the uh, some of the nuclear, nuclear reactors at Baraka, which were built by the Koreans. Um, so that's a real feather in the cap of the Emirates now that they have uh, some of the newest nuclear reactors in the world. But part of it, Freddie, I think is just, hello, duh, if we're going to be serious about CO2, sorry to get technical here, hello, duh. Um, <laughs> but if we're going to be serious about CO2, we have to be serious about nuclear. There's just no other technology that can do as much as nuclear can in terms of scale, low carbon, lower no carbon, uh, deployable now. Um, and when it comes to that, the West is getting their pants beat off by the Russians and the Chinese. I think there is now, particularly in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a realization, particularly in Europe, but now in the U.S. as well, we have to get serious about nuclear. Mm. Um, and to go back to electric cars, uh, lastly, Robert, but, um, you talked about declining demand for them at the moment. Uh, certainly, there seems to be a lot of problems with the EV car market globally, and there is that aspect of China having an increasing uh, control over it uh, and producing enormous amounts of EVs. 
much more cheaply than than we do. Um, do you anticipate that uh, you know because uh, in this country Rishi Sunak has delayed the ban on on diesel and petrol cars uh, by five years? I yeah, think it's now going to be twenty thirty five is when the ban is due to take place. Do you anticipate that actually in 2040 we will still be mostly driving petrol cars? Absolutely. Yeah. Why do we use gasoline? Why do we use diesel fuel? I'm in, I'm in rural Nebraska. I'm in Kearney, Nebraska. I flew here on a jetliner. From, I, drove to, I drove to here from Omaha. If, if oil didn't exist, we would have to invent it. Our global economy depends on oil. You can love it. You can hate it. You can have these idiots screaming, just stop oil. They don't know F all. I mean, it, let's. It, this is about the basic physics of the systems that we depend on. And they depend on refined oil products because it's an amazing thing. If oil didn't exist, we would have to invent it. And this, this, these claims that we can, we can run our economies on electric vehicles, the, the, the public... It, it, it's simply it, nonsense. The amount of materials that is required that will be required are being required. Copper, neodymium, iron, boron, magnets, st- you know, uh, uh, other commodities, nickel. Um, Tesla is funding an, or going to be the biggest offtaker for a n- new nickel refinery in Indonesia. Well, what is Indonesia doing to power that nickel refinery? They're building a coal-fired power plant. Now, tell me why this makes sense. So, uh, uh, one final point, which is. That China, why is China dominating the EV market? Let's look at what the geostrategic uh, implications are. Why are they doing this? Well, it's not because necessarily they love electric vehicles. It's that by using electric vehicles, they can run uh, significant parts of their transportation on coal-fired power plants. They don't have to, it reduces their need for imported oil. So China has thought through this. They're very strategic thinking. And what we're what we're lacking in the West is long-term understanding of our vulnerabilities. And uh, to get back to the point we made earlier, this this rush toward EVs is going to be, and uh, is going to put us more into the uh, more de- rather make more dependence on Chinese supply chains because again, in EVs they dominate batteries, cathodes, anodes, all of those key components to put into electric vehicles. Um, I'm, I'm for, you know, I'm a homer. I'm what I'm I'm built in Detroit. I'm about the U.S. Uh, well, actually, lastly, I would like to ask you one more question um, about su- yeah, sure. sustainable aviation fuel, because in this country, Rishi Sunak uh, did a big press yeah. thing yesterday or a tweet and video and so on about uh, Britain having the first uh, carbon neutral flight using sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, and he thinks that could bring 2.5 billion yeah. to the British economy. Do you buy into this stuff? No. <laughs> the idea, Freddie, we're going to run, I'm sure it's made on some kind of plant material, right? It's, we're going to use photosynthesis to run our jetliners. Oh, please. I mean, okay, waste oil. Okay, fine. There you go. But it's still, but it's, I think it's waste vegetable oil, right? Ultimately, it's some kind of a plant product. What is it? There are 26,000, memory serves, 26,000 jetliner flights every day. You ran one. Okay. Call me when it makes a difference. I mean, you know, we've heard about this green jet fuel for for years. I can put you back to Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State talking about this in there. I think it was talking about the U.S. Navy using some kind of green jet fuel. Well, you know, it's just... what what is clear, Freddie, in all of these alt energy technologies, is that the hype 
exceeds anything close to what is the actual reality. And this latest thing from Rishi Sunak is just another example of that. Robert, uh, you are a jet fuel blast of uh, sanity uh, in, <laughs> on, on this subject. So, thank all the way from Nebraska. All the way from Nebraska. Yeah. Uh, so, thank you very much for coming on to Americano again, uh, and I do hope we'll get you on uh, again soon, perhaps in the new year. That'd be great. Thanks, Freddie. Always happy to do it. Thank you very much for listening to the Americano podcast. I would like to thank my brilliant producer Natasha Farose and the rest of the Spectators broadcast team. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Thank you very much. God bless America.